If you have your Bibles, and if you don't, why don't you? I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. Beginning at verse 19. John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. I have a rather uh, long, it's, it's about uh, 15 verses of scripture to read. Hopefully that doesn't bother you, you know, reading scripture in a worship service. Let's talk about core values here. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, here is what John writes. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, "Uh, and who are you? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm a voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had sent questioned him. Why do you baptize if you're not the Christ or Elijah nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. He told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come and come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this, this is God's chosen one. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm not absolutely sure why God sent John the Baptist. I know he sent him. I'm just not fully cognizant of why he sent him. And I don't think I'm the only one. 
the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees from Jerusalem, they can't figure it out either. They're wondering who he is. They, it is such a significant question that they send an entourage of people, a, a committee of, of priests and Levites to come to John the Baptist and ask him a series of questions so that they can ascertain who John really is, who John represents, and who John understands, how John understands exactly his calling to be. As a result, this conversation between John the Baptist and the priests and Levites does not go very well. It's a tense exchange. You got to really read the story to see how tense it is. You see, these Pharisees or these priests and Levites are scared. They're apprehensive when they approach John. And John the Baptist is angry. You know how I know John the Baptist is angry? always angry. It's just the way he is. The atmosphere is complicated. It's complicated by the fact that John is becoming increasingly powerful. He's becoming increasingly popular. He's the new it guy. And everybody is flooding to him. See, I don't think we quite understand this. He's, he's in the wilderness. In other words, he's out in the middle of nowhere where nothing is. And people who are making pilgrimages to Jerusalem are leaving the temple, the big city, the religious atmosphere that they've come to journey to. Along with the residents of Jerusalem, they're leaving the big city and town, and they're wandering out into the wilderness where John is in order to hear him and to be baptized. In other words, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests and the Levites, they're losing influence. Their services are not being used like they once were. They're not gaining members. They're losing members. And John the Baptist is gaining crowds, a following. He's gaining a large sense of importance in the minds of Jewish believers. See, these, these priests and Levites that come representing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is not the first confrontation that has been had between John and the group from Jerusalem. The first one, well, the first one didn't go very well. Uh, you got to go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. And here's what happens in Matthew. It says, people went out to him, that's John the Baptist, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. We know this, but listen to this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Don't you just love the pastoral nature of that? Hi, I love you all, you brood of vipers. It's a tense, tense relationship. As a result of this confrontation that we that's talked about in Matthew, an adversarial relationship develops between John the Baptist 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you want to know why the Pharisees were antagonistic towards Jesus, it didn't start with Jesus. It started with John the Baptist. He didn't like them, and he embarrassed them. On top of that, he got bigger crowds than they did, and he had more influence than they had. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have questions that they want answered. They're trying to figure out who John the Baptist is. Is he Messiah? Is he Elijah that's been reincarnated? Is he some kind of prophet that's in their midst? You got to remember that the leadership in Jerusalem is looking for all of this. They're looking for a prophet particularly because prophets are fairly regular during the history of Israel. That's why you have all those major and minor prophets, you know, the books that nobody reads in the Old Testament. Thank you. Thank you very much. The ones with Zephaniah, yeah, yeah, Obadiah, yeah, oh yeah. Joel, Micah, Nahum, Nahu, Nahum. All these are Old Testament prophets. They crop up continually, regularly, sometimes multiple numbers of them during the same generation. But now, oh my, now it's been 200 years, 300 years maybe. Some scholars think as many as 400 years since they've had a prophet in Israel. And the only thing these Pharisees and Sadducees can think of is the only thing that could make this guy more popular than us, wilderness versus temple, is maybe he's a prophet. And if he's a prophet, we need to... So, the Pharisees and the Sadducees want to know What's informing John the Baptist? What's moving and motivating him? See, the underlying problem here is a political one. And it's a theological one. You know, it, it fascinates me. I, I must digress. It fascinates me that we don't talk about politics in the, in the church. Somehow it's a taboo subject. Because after all, when you get together at Thanksgiving, and you may have done this, the two subjects to avoid are what? Politics and religion. My son, uh, Jonathan, tried to do a series before the election called Kingdom Civics, talking about the politics of Jesus' time. He actually lost people because he talked about the politics of Jesus' time. <laughs> Folks, help me here. Why did that become a taboo subject? You have to realize that in this context, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests and the Levites, John the Baptist... This is a political discussion, and it's informed by their theology, but their theology is wrapped up in their politics, which is one of the problems of Pharisees and Sadducees is that they can't separate their politics from their religion, and it's a mess when politics and religion become combined. That would have been a good place for an amen, which is one of the reasons we don't talk about politics in the church because we're afraid it'll get entwined. Maybe we ought to talk about politics so that we make sure that it doesn't get entwined. But I digress. People and pilgrims are flocking to John the Baptist out in the wilderness. The temple is becoming less used. The priestly role is being less valued. 
and the sacrificial system has suddenly become less important. Theologically, the whole baptism concept's a radical departure from anything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been teaching. It's a radical departure from their worship practice of sacrifices. As a matter of fact, I would say that John the Baptist coming and baptizing people is the most radical change in Jewish since the exile, or maybe even before the exile. And that's saying quite a bit. Since the Jews have returned from exile, nothing has shaken the idea of how they worship than John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness. So you can see why this conversation between the priests and the Levites representing the Pharisees and Sadducees and John the Baptist is full of tension. It's confrontational, far more so than you may have thought when you read it initially or even when I read it. First, I want you to notice that John the Baptist jumps the gun and confesses. He confesses. I had to look up the word. The, the word in the Greek is homologio. And homologio in the Greek means to concede. It means not to deny. It means to confess, to declare, to admit, to profess. This is what he does freely. He confesses. He does not deny. He admits. He professes. I'm not him. You're coming out here because you're afraid that I'm the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the You don't have to worry about this, guys. I'm not him. And that confession takes the wind out of the sails of the priests and the Levites because, frankly, when they came, they were pretty well convinced that he was the Messiah or at least was going to claim to be the Messiah. That's why all the people are coming. Hasn't been a prophet in 400 years but if this guy shows up and if everybody's coming to him, then maybe this guy is the Messiah. The disciples that are gathering around John the Baptist are gathering around him because they think he might just be the Messiah. These guys, these priests and Levites, they're not on a fact-finding mission. They're on a political mission. They came looking for religious ammunition. They want religious ammunition to undercut and destroy the growing influence of John the Baptist. They want people to realize this is a charlatan and a fraud. This is a guy with a big ego and you're just feeding him and not going to the temple and coming out here to the wilderness. This water baptism thing is a fad. It won't last. If he claims to be the Christ, if he says he's the Messiah, then we can accuse him of blasphemy. And his reputation can be destroyed. You realize this is the same playbook they used for Jesus. They did the exact same thing to him. Except he said, I am the Christ. And that made it worse. Undaunted by this confession, this submission that I'm not the guy. The priests and the Levites try a series of other questions designed to pin him down. And I want you to notice how the conversation really goes because the conversation doesn't go quite like it's written. It goes a little different. It's a little, it's a little more curt, cut off, direct. It's, kind of, it's the kind of interrogation that a lawyer would be proud of. This is what all lawyers tell their clients. If you get on the stand... Don't answer anything more 
the question and answer the question as short as possible. And so here we go. Priests and Levites, John the Baptist. Are you the Christ? Who are you? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Nope. Who are you? Give us an answer. We got to take something back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that sent us, so give us an answer. We got to take something back to our superiors. Give us something. Finally, one last time. They try and get John the Baptist to say something, to give them something, anything. And so finally they say, what do you say about yourself? And that's their grand mistake. Any good lawyer will tell you, you never ask a question in an interrogation that you don't know the answer to. And they don't know the answer to this question. Tell us something about yourself. Tell us anything. What do you say about yourself? It should be noted at this point that the priests and Levites have no category by which to define John the Baptist anymore. If he's not the king, he's not the Messiah, he's not royal, he's not a prophet, he's not Elijah come back from the chariot, who is he? They just don't have a category for him. They don't know how to characterize him. Is he a false prophet? That's what they're hoping. But at the moment, they can't figure out who he is. So what's left? So you can see, I'm still not sure why God sent John the Baptist, because I have no idea who he is or why he had to send him. If he's not a prophet, if he's not Elijah, if he's not all these things, why send him? What's the big deal? It's obvious God sent him. Why does he send him? And it's at this point in exasperation that John the Baptist finally tells them who he is. <laughs> I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm a reed in the wind. Could you be a little more clear? Do you have to be so obtuse? His cryptic answer doesn't satisfy the priests and the Levites because all he does is quote scripture and it's an abstract scripture and they still don't know what it means. But what he says in this quote reveals so much about who John the Baptist really is. And folks, if you'll take this to heart, I'm convinced that John the Baptist's lie to these priests and Levites can change your life. And I know it can change the direction and future of this church.
All John claims to be is a voice. He says, I'm a specific voice, and it's the specific voice that is the key. John the Baptist is a voice who has been sent by God to identify somebody else. In other words, he's there to identify the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Eventually, in a few moments, at the end of the text, he's going to identify that it's Jesus. John seeks neither power nor influence nor prominence for himself. Now, as soon as he says, I'm none of these things, and all I am is a voice, he confounds the priests and the Levites because the Jewish system of leadership is that you obtain power, you use power, and you wield power. And John the Baptist says, those aren't my values. That's not my principle. John seeks none of these things. John is the opposite of the priests and the Pharisees the, uh, the Sadducees and the Levites. He, he's the exact opposite of the Jerusalem cadre of leadership because his concept of leadership is so very different. What he tells them is, I'm not a leader, I'm a servant. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm the single most popular figure in Jewish worship practice. I'm the one that people are flocking to. I'm the one who has the ability to change everything in Judaism. And that's not my role. I'm a voice. That's all I am. A servant a servant is one who is unconcerned with personal aggrandizement. Servants don't care about power. Matter of fact, power seems unhealthy to them. Servants aren't about control. They're about service. They're not even about longevity. If I'm doing something and somebody else can do it better or somebody else can do it that isn't me, go at it. In verse 27 in the John says to the crowd, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You realize when he says this, what he can fathom this. John is the most popular thing. John is the most powerful thing. John the Baptist is the one whose sandals none of us are worthy to untie. And yet he says, not me, I'm not worthy to untie my sandals. To prove this, John the Baptist ends this private conversation, this political dialogue having with these priests and Levites, and he does so very abruptly. He says what he says, he quotes Isaiah, and he says, that's it, guys, on we go, and he moves on. And he's, he's done it. <laughs> I'm so proud of him. Because what he's done is that he's managed to confess that he's none of the things that the crowd thinks he is. But he's done so in a private conversation with these priests and Levites, and nobody else has heard him. So he's gotten away with it. 
He can still get crowds. He can still get people that come to him. And he doesn't have to admit to them that he's none of these things. He's done it in a private conversation with the priests and Levites. And if the priests and Levites go out and say, well, John told us that he's none of those things, they'll all just look at him and say, ah, you're lying because you're priests and you're Levites. And you're jealous of him. He's gotten away with it. He's gotten away with what? He's gotten away with admitting exactly who he is without diminishing any of his power and authority. But you see, John's a servant. And while he's gotten away with it, he doesn't care. And so the next day, without a whole lot of prompting, he goes in front of the crowds, and what does he admit? I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. Look at him. He's the one. The next day, he confesses. He confesses all this to the crowds, to all the disciples that follow him. In verse 31, he says, I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he, he might be revealed. He might be revealed to Israel. The reason God sends John the Baptist before Jesus is not for him just to be a voice. It's not for him just to announce that Jesus is coming. As important as those things are, that's not why he comes. It's not just to proclaim that the Messiah is on the, uh, on the rise, but it's to teach us this one profound truth. And I pray you all hear it. This is the truth that John teaches that can transform your life and this church. You ready? It's not about me. It's not. Anybody know the name Rick Warren? Rick Warren, a few years ago, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago now or more, wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church, I think. He wrote both of them. He's a pastor in Southern California, very influential, big church, mega church. He wrote these books. They became so popular, so... How many of you own a copy of one of those? Oh, yeah, I do. They became so popular that Rick Warren went to his board and he says, folks, I'm making so much money through the sale of my books that I have a proposal for you. I'd like to remain your pastor, but I would appreciate it if you didn't pay me anymore. I'm trying to look at Scott's face at this point. <laughs> Read. <laughs> wise, wise advice. When they recovered from their jaws dropping on the floor, they said, okay, pastor, are you leaving? No. Are you quitting? Are you retiring? No. Are you going to get a little, give it less time? No. I just don't want to get paid. He said, you sure? I said, yeah. And they said, okay. He goes, oh, by the way, I have a check I want to give you. And he gave them a check. You know what the check was for? All of his back pay 
from the time he started as pastor till that day. He paid them back every dime that they had paid him in salary for the years he had been their pastor. It's not about me. As a matter of fact, if you have that book, when you go home, pull it out and read the first line of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. You know what the first line is? It's not about you. As far as I'm concerned, he could have put a period there and not written anything else. I still would have paid for the book. It's not about you. It's not about me. Boy, that's an easy thing to amen in public. It's a harder thing to live out in public and in private. Because, frankly, I want everything to be about me. See, one of the difficult things about being a pastor is that I want it all to be about me and you want it all to be about you. And that causes conflict. Can I get an amen on that one? It's not about me. It's not about my feelings. It's not about my wants. It's not about my needs. It's not even about what I think. Guess what? It ain't about you. That's my brood of vipers speech. We have this cultural belief that I want what I want when I want it, and I want what I want right now. You know, the Bible does not teach that. Not even close. You know what the Bible teaches? Not about me. But the Bible also teaches it ain't about you either. The will of God is about, I don't know, the will of God. Because God's will is what is best for everyone, even if you don't think it's good for you. Guess what? If God's will is not good for you in your perception of things, may I suggest that you change rather than try and get God to change his will. I want the next pastor to be young. I want the next pastor to be mature. I want the next pastor to have children. I want the next pastor to have I want the next pastor to be single so he can spend all of his time. I want the next pastor to be a man. I want the next pastor to be a woman. Well, I stepped in it there, didn't I? <laughs> now, I want somebody that looks like me. I want somebody that thinks like me. Guess what? <laughs> it ain't about you. It ain't about you. I've talked to enough people here that if there are some of you that are heartbroken that Josh left, there are others of you that have said, well, that's what it is, what's next? There are a few of you that said, doesn't bother me at all that Josh left. Guess what? I don't care. I love you all. I just don't care. And you know why? 
It's not about you. It's about what God is doing. It's about God's will. Come on, get an amen out of here. For those of you that are part of the search committee, guess what? You got one job. It's not to find a new pastor. If you think you commissioned these people to go find a new pastor, you will be sorely disappointed because it's not their job. Guess what their job is? To do the will of God, period, zip, boof. They're out there trying to understand where the Spirit is leading, how the Spirit is leading, what the Spirit is calling. It ain't about you. And if the person that they bring in, if she comes here, if you're uncomfortable, I just don't care. If she comes here and stands before you, it's not about you. It's not even about her or about him. It's about what God is doing. It's about the leading of the Spirit. Come on. It's always that. That's what this church is supposed to be about. If you want to know what the core value of this church is, there are lots of core values, but the core value of the core values is it's not about me, it's about the will of God. It's about the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. It's not about what God is doing. It's not about me. It's where the Holy Spirit is leading. It's about his calling, not my desire. Whoever comes will not satisfy everything that you want. And that's not their fault. It's yours. Because I know what the job description is for the new pastor. I do. I know what it is. I haven't read the one you wrote, but I know what the job description really is. You want somebody who's 30 or under and has 20 years of pastoral experience. You want somebody who has children of various ages and their children are as perfect as they are. You want their spouse to somehow work as hard in the church as many hours as their their pastor, their, their, their mate, their husband or their wife does. You want the spouse to work just as hard for no pay. Because this is a two for one deal. I know what it looks like. You guys wrote this thing in your heads. Every church does. And God is looking down and saying, not about you. It's not about you. No figure in biblical writ is more important than John the Baptist, obviously with the exception of Jesus. Why? Because he does something that few, if anybody, does in Scripture. He looks at the height of his power and influence and says, not about me. I'm going to give it all away. And that is the least used spiritual gift in the kingdom of God.
question of a pastoral transition is based on whether we're going to buy into the sin of modern-day evangelicalism. Modern-day evangelicalism has made faith only an individual thing. And therefore, it has taught us that it's all about me. My faith, my wants, my needs, my spiritual life. But Jesus came to die for a world, and he came to institute the church. And therefore, his will is always about us, and not just about me. Will we step into the shoes of John the Baptist and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to yield my will to your will, my desires, to your leading. I want this to be about you, God. I want this to be about Jesus. I want this to be about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Over the past year, both in the classes that I teach at seminary and in places where I have gone to preach, I have used a particular visual, and I really can't remember whether I used this visual during the summer. If I did, pardon me, because I'm going to use it again. The picture you're about to see is a piece of art called the Eisenheim Altarpiece. It's by an artist named Grunwald. I came across it because I teach a lot about Karl Barth and his theology. You can put it up if you want. I teach a lot about Karl Barth and his theology and his work on preaching. And Barth said that this was an important piece of art for him that had ever been created. And it's a strange, it's a strange painting. Not so much the fact that Jesus is hanging on the cross. We see that a lot and Jesus is dying there on the cross. And not because of the people that are on Jesus' right. The two people depicted standing up on Jesus' right, the, the woman in white is Jesus' mother, Mary, and the gentleman, the young man in the red, that's John, not John the Baptist, but John, the And if you remember, when Jesus hung on the cross, he said to his mother, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother, meaning to John, take care of my mom. At Jesus' feet... The woman praying is Mary Magdalene, maybe Jesus' most faithful disciple, most committed disciple. All of that is pretty normative and would not designate the Eisenheim altarpiece as special to Karl Barth or to anyone else for that matter. It's a good painting, a good depiction. But it's what happens on Jesus' left that caused Barth to extol this piece. Because the gentleman on the left <laughs> is out of place. You see, the gentleman on his left, the one with the little bony finger pointing, that's John the Baptist. And in his hand, he has a Bible, Scripture. And so much is wrong about that depiction. Part of what's wrong with the depiction is that you didn't have a book of Scriptures. You had scrolls but the artist doesn't care. And John the Baptist, if you know your timeline, 
John the Baptist is dead. Off with his head. He died sometime before this. Again, the artist doesn't care. He's a little bit like what we talked about with John as a gospel writer. He doesn't care about the timeline. He's trying to give you a point. And at John's feet is the lamb, representing the fact that Jesus is the lamb of God. But it's what John the Baptist is doing that so enamored this painting to the great theologian Karl Barth. He's pointing. He's pointing at Jesus. Barth said, of all the things that I understand the gospel to be, this is the essential part. That we as believers are not here to point to ourselves or to point to what we're doing. We have one task. Go ahead, you can do it. One task. I use this same, uh, this same picture and analogy about a half ago when I preached the installation service on Sunday morning for Chuck Myricks at Arlington. I told the church there that when they walked in every Sunday morning, they had to walk in, find their seat, get comfortable, get their coats and everything out of their hands, and then they ought to take a moment to pray, and they ought to end their prayer by just going, to remind them that that's their mission. That's the responsibility. You wanna know why John the Baptist came? It's easy. You wanna know what the mission and ministry of First Church in Talmadge is? It's easy. You wanna know how the search committee is gonna find the person that God is calling? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. You want to know what the point is about believing? This is the point. If you'll do this, not only will the next pastor be the pastor that God intends, but this church will be revolutionized. Because as a body, we look at one another and say, we love you. Our core value is to be in relationship with one another. And I want to minister to your needs. And I care about you and about your life. But you know what? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, make this as simple as possible for us. We love to complicate things and to make them more difficult than what they are. Remind us afresh and anew that this is about you and not about us. Lead this congregation, direct this congregation Develop this congregation, deepen this congregation, move this congregation, shape this congregation, disciple this congregation. Because we come to realize it's all about you, about who you are, about your name, and about your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen.